A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. This is a program for people who've made a conscious decision to use their minds. And I know that sounds like, well, aren't we special? See, here's the thing. You don't have to agree with me. I'm not going to suggest that everything I tell you is something you have to agree. Otherwise, you're not using your mind. The fact that you would consider an alternative point of view, such as other views that are offered on this show, tells me that uh, you're more serious about learning the truth than you are about uh, staying ensconced in comfortable lies, which unfortunately describes a large majority of the public, not just in America, but uh, throughout the developed world. It's a mixed blessing, and it's also a curse when you look at all the information sources that are available to us. Maybe, now, I, I have to confess, last night I sat down with my 16-year-old son, and I watched The Social Dilemma. And and the funny thing is, most of the information that, that I learned there was things, bits and pieces I had picked up along the way. There was a lot of it that it was like, oh yeah, I've heard that before. But it was very chilling to hear some of the people who were instrumental in helping to create Twitter and Facebook and various, uh, basically the various social media engines out there talk about how, look, this this is not so much about, hey, look at this great tool that we're providing everybody, and more about uh, it's... If, if you're not paying for it, I guess the saying goes, you are the product. And I think they make a pretty convincing case that uh, the product is there to tap into who you are, psychologically latch on to you. It's almost a paras- parasitical relationship. And then uh, to feed you. What, uh, what will keep you coming back and scrolling through that news feed and, and, and staying and watching another video? YouTube does this. It's really fascinating stuff. And by the way, I'm not trying to suck the last little bit of joy out of your life. I'm just suggesting that uh, there may be some pretty crazy behind-the-scenes stuff going on with these uh, social media and other you know apps that we use to stay in touch with people and to... to get a feel for what's happening in our world. So the big question that remains is this. Will government tyranny be completed before humanity wakes up again? And I say that with the understanding that a lot of humanity right now is looking into a screen and, uh-huh, yeah, nodding as you're talking to them, but not really even looking at you because they're so consumed with what's going on in that screen. And I'm guilty of this too, so I'm, please, don't, don't get me wrong. I'm not above all this. First thing I do when I wake up in the morning, I better check and see, do I have any rewards, you know, on, on my social media accounts? And, and in this, uh, in the, the show, The Social Dilemma, they liken it to, to pulling the handle on a, a one-armed bandit, right? A slot machine. I know nowadays you just push, push a button, but back in the day, you'd pull the handle and let's see, let's see what comes. Let's see what comes. Did I get a jackpot? Ooh, somebody liked this article that I shared or this meme that I shared or they liked a a picture that I posted. Ooh, they tagged me in a picture. 
And the pleasure centers in my brain start to fire off. And, ooh, you know, dopamine. Thank you. This, oh, this is so wonderful. How do you shake people out of a trance that they voluntarily put themselves into? Even if they didn't realize exactly what they were doing. I know this is kind of a heavy place to jump in, but here we go. I'm jumping in with both feet. I've got an article here in front of me from Paul Rosenberg. Now, this is from nine years ago. And he wonders, will government tyranny be completed before we wake up again? His point is, all of our lives have occurred in an era of peak sonambulism, sleepwalking. And those of us who enjoy being awake have suffered mightily because of it. I like his observation that using your mind has come with a price in our time, which is pretty sick, really. But he says you can thank growing government tyranny for that. But here's the good news. Okay, so let's let's not just look at the negative, but the good news is humanity does not sleep forever. Eventually, humans get tired with the permanent suspension of thought. And Paul Rosenberg says, I know none of us have ever seen that in our lifetimes, but he says... I study history, and trust me, it has happened in the past. So picture this. Can you imagine people traveling 100 miles on foot over muddy roads and fields with bad shoes, sleeping outdoors just to listen to a teacher who the authorities had recently defrocked for immorality and cast out of the city? And by the way, this teacher wasn't a religious guru or the leader of a revolution. This was a guy who was teaching things like history, philosophy, logic. Well, hundreds of people, even thousands, did this in the early 12th century. Now, this teacher's name was Peter Abelard, and he wasn't the only one. Europeans had been cut off from their learning by their ruling systems for hundreds of years. Yet at this moment, they remembered that they were human, and they woke up. And Paul Rosenberg says, I'm promising that this will happen Uh, I'm not promising that this will happen again anytime soon, but he says it does happen on occasion. And history shows us the way. From the 12th century through the 19th century, Europeans and Americans generally used their brains and life in the West improved massively, far beyond anything ever seen in the historical record. But then it changed. Knowledge didn't go away, but humanity forgot that knowledge mattered. They decided that sleepwalking was easier and better. Now, it's not often that you get personalities as diverse as F.A. Hayek or Virginia Woolf or Ayn Rand and the Bohemian Artists of London all to agree, but there was one subject on which they did concur. All of them said that there was a distinct change in the nature of humanity in 1911 or thereabouts. Virginia Woolf, for example, was very precise, placing it in December of 1910 and writing that human character has changed. Ayn Rand, who was very young at the time, placed it before World War I and said the West lost its nerve. Well, whatever it was that happened, it's very clear that since that time, the men of the West have tried very hard to sleep and have fought to remain in their slumbers. Yes, they were scientifically trained to be that way in government conditioning centers, a.k.a. schools. Yes, They spent decades of their lives in factories where thinking was taken as a threat. And yes, it's true that they were subjected to millions of advertisements that grasped at their minds and wills. But even all that doesn't account for a hundred years of slumbers. See, there's a reason that it's called the idiot box. The big factor in all of this was the great god of the age, television. 
After all, to most people, television is simply what we do. Try telling people you don't watch TV sometime and see what happens. They'll, they'll treat you like a space alien. And if you persist, they're likely to see you as a threat. TV is simply what modern humanity does. Americans watch better than 150 hours of TV per month these days on average. And when they're not watching flashing images on their awesome new flat screen, bigger than their neighbors, of course, they're plugged into some kind of iPod, iPad, or some other trendy new iGadget. Anything to avoid thinking. The more bizarre the world gets, like presidents and courts agreeing that droning citizens to death without a trial isn't a constitutional problem, the more they avoid thinking. The more the need to think sits in front of their faces, the more they crawl into TV, music, tabloids, booze, anything else that will allow them to avoid it. Their ignorance must be preserved, or they'll have to face the thing they've been running from all their lives, which is responsibility. But he says, this isn't going to last forever. Whenever it is that the hypnosis breaks, those of us who've been using it as a slave drug will have a problem. And maybe that's why they're in such a hurry to build a cheap, fast tyranny. Once humanity turns again, the elite life skimmers will need the ability to remove troublemakers quickly and easily and to lead it and to lead with it on the nightly news, presuming that anyone still watches the insulting drivel. There are signs of humanity waking up, after all. Now, again, keep in mind, he wrote this nine years ago. He says, who would have dared to predict thousands of young people following an old doctor like Ron Paul around the country, eagerly waiting to hear about the Federal Reserve scam? Now, he says, I'm not at all sure that will be enough, but it did involve numbers of young people opening their eyes, and that was a real surprise. So if this continues, he says the power mongers will need cheap control, which is why they've been procuring drones and computers. Drones and 24-7 monitoring make for excellent, cheap tyranny. A worldwide surveillance web to see what you are thinking about, a worldwide manipulation system to nudge you in the right directions, and drones to intimidate you and, if necessary, to take you out. Once your worst text and emails have been worked into an appropriate story, of course. Dang, that's chilling. And it also rings kind of true. So we're in a race between cheap government tyranny and humanity deciding that a hundred semi-comatose years were enough and it's time to wake up. So which side will win the race? I don't know, says Paul Rosenberg. But I would suggest that to the fact you're listening to this would indicate you're a part of that awakening. So let's embrace it. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And welcome back to the show. Just want to give a quick shout out to my sponsors, including MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, HSLAmmo.com, SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com and GovernYourIncome.com So I really try hard not to get caught up in the personalities and the politics just because so much of it is simply staged melodrama. But I have to admit, as I've watched uh, some of the exchanges between Senator Rand Paul and Dr. Anthony Fauci, it's pretty hard not to get sucked into what's being said there. And more, more importantly, it's fascinating to watch Dr. Fauci wriggling like a fish on a hook 
when he's questioned about things like funding gain-of-function research. Let me give you just a real quick excerpt. This is this is from a Project Veritas video, but but uh, this is just a, a small sample of their latest exchange. Senator, with all due respect, I disagree with so many of the things that you've said. You're still unwilling to admit that they gained in function, they gained in lethality. According to the definition that is currently <laughs> operable, we're not going to get anywhere close to trying to prevent another lab leak of this dangerous sort of experiment. You won't admit that it's dangerous, and for that lack of judgment, I think it's time that you resign. Wow. <laughs> I love Rand Paul for for calling out Dr. Fauci, and Dr. Fauci turns out is a pretty good tap dancer. I want to share with you an article, this is from Andrea Widberg, about uh, Fauci's latest efforts to evade any kind of responsibility for what was going on through his uh, agency, and uh, and the Wuhan lab working on gain-of-function research. Andrea Woodberg says on Monday, Project Veritas released documents showing that an organization called EcoHealth Alliance approached the Defense, Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, or DARPA, seeking funding for its research into SARS viruses in rats, only to be turned down because of DARPA's gain-of-function concerns. So EcoHealth then turned to Fauci's NIAID, which seemingly did research at the Wuhan Institute of Virology that led to COVID spread throughout the world. Now, when quizzed about these documents before the Senate, Fauci denied the charges. But if you listen carefully, he denied a straw man of his own making. Andrea Woodberg explains Monday's bombshell was that DARPA refused to accept EcoHealth's proposal for bat virus research in China. And it did so because EcoHealth's proposal failed to acknowledge that it was obviously doing gain-of-function research and therefore failed to address safety concerns or problems with the gain-of-function research moratorium. Project Veritas also produced an August 2021 letter from uh, United States Marine Corps Major Joseph Murphy, a former DARPA fellow. Major Murphy wrote the summary after finding conveniently misfiled documents. Now, if you don't like plowing through the documents, the the video from Project Veritas is linked. It's it's about 10 minutes long. No, I take it back. It's only about seven minutes long. Probably worth your time to at least consider. I'm not saying you have to believe it, but it's it's worth looking at. Major Murphy's summary of what took place after 2018, when DARPA rejected the EcoHealth proposal, is illuminating. In fact, if you have the time, read all 24 pages, but... For now, Andrea Woodberg says, I'll focus on two points. The first is that since April 2020, it's been known within the government that both ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine are curatives because of how they interact with the virus's engineered protein spike, or spike protein, rather. Now, she says, I happen to believe that the administrative state, Democratic Party, and media, but I repeat myself, quashed this information, first to destroy Trump's re-election chances, and then to maintain steady pressure on Americans to conform to the jab regime. Now, the second point is what Major Murphy wrote about EcoHealth's journey from DARPA to Fauci's NIAID. And it must be understood that Major Murphy has no firsthand knowledge of what Fauci ultimately saw. Instead, as Major Murphy explains, he was privy to the original DARPA documents as well as documents from the Wuhan lab, which allowed him to tie the two together. 
In other words, she says, if I understand correctly what he wrote, while he knows that EcoHealth connected with Fauci, he has no firsthand knowledge of whatever information written or oral EcoHealth gave to Fauci. So this is a quote from Major Murphy. Being defense-related, it makes sense that EcoHealth submitted the proposal first to the Department of Defense before it settled with NIH, NIAID. Note the passive formulation of before it settled with phrasing, meaning that Murphy didn't know the terms of the settlement. As it is known, as is known rather, Dr. Fauci with NIAID did not reject the proposal. End quote. Now we can turn to us to Fauci's straw man denial on Tuesday when he appeared before the Senate. Rand Paul went after him vigorously, which led to Fauci's wonderful self-own as he held aloft a sign saying, Fire Dr. Fauci. Let me see if I can play a little audio from that exchange. Maybe the greatest thing you hear all day. Dr. Fauci, the idea that a government official like yourself would claim unilaterally, unilaterally to represent science, that any criticism of you would be considered a criticism of science itself, is quite dangerous. Central planning, whether it be of the economy or of science, is risky because of the fallibility of the planner. It would not be so catastrophic if the planner were simply one physician in Peoria. Then the mistakes would only affect that physician's patients, the people who chose that physician. But when the planner is a government official, like yourself, who rules by mandate, the errors are compounded and become much more harmful. A planner who believes he is the science leads to an arrogance that justifies, in his mind, using government resources to smear and to destroy the reputations of other scientists who disagree with him. In an email exchange with Dr. Collins, you conspire, and I quote here directly from the email, to create a quick and devastating published takedown of three prominent epidemiologists from Harvard, Oxford, and Stanford. Apparently there's a lot of fringe epidemiologists at Harvard, Oxford, and Stanford. And you quote in the email that they were from Dr. Collins, and you, you agree that they are fringe. And immediately there's this takedown effort. A published takedown, though, you know, doesn't exactly conjure up the image of a dispassionate scientist. Instead of engaging them on the merits, you and Dr. Collins sought to smear them as fringe and take them down. And not in journals, in lay press. This is not only antithetical to the scientific method, it's the epitome of cheap politics, and it's reprehensible, Dr. Fauci. Do you really think it's appropriate to use your $420,000 salary to attack scientists that disagree with you? Off comes the mask. The, the email you're referring to was an email of Dr. Collins to me. If you look at the email that you responded to and hurried up and said, I can do it, I can do it. We got something in Wired no, magazine. No, no, no. I think in you usual did. fashion, Senator, you are distorting everything about me. Did you First ever object all, to Dr. Collins' characterization of them as fringe? Did you write back to Dr. Collins and say, no, they're not fringe, they're esteemed scientists, and it would be beneath me I, I did to not do that? You responded to him that you would do it, and you immediately got an article you, in Wired you, you, and you sent it okay, back. Okay, I'm going to bow out of it there, but you get the idea. That's a, that's a pretty sharp exchange, and yet Fauci, look, for whatever faults he has, the man can tap dance. you got to admit, he's, he's pretty light on his feet. But he, but then he's, he's talking about, well, look at this, this Rand Paul website, you know, it's got this thing, fire Dr. Fauci. I mean, he just gave Rand Paul some marvelous advertising. 
But there's there's just an arrogance there in in Dr. Fauci where I can do no wrong. And when we come back on the other side of the break, we're going to continue with <clears throat> with uh, Andrea Widberg's column, but also we'll talk a little bit about uh, Dr. Fauci and his unwillingness to take responsibility. I mean, come on, he was going to save us all from you know the dangers of this horrible pandemic, right? If we just follow the science, and he is the science in his own words, you think he would be proud to take those accolades, but no. He uh, he falls back on the, look, I was just following CDC guidelines. I was just following orders. Well, congratulations, Dr. Fauci. I believe you are ready for Nuremberg. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. In my opinion, I'm spending entirely too much time today on Dr. Anthony Fauci, but I think this is a story that deserves some attention, and if nothing else, should serve as a cautionary tale. A little bit of power, a little bit of authority will go to some people's heads. And I think I think Fauci is a is a perfect example of this. Sharing this article from Andrea Widberg from AmericanThinker.com, Fauci wriggles like a fish on a hook when questioned about DARPA. And by the way, it wasn't just Rand Paul who was questioning him. He was also questioned, Fauci was also questioned by Senator Roger Marshall from Kansas, grilling him regarding his insistence that his department never funded gain-of-function research. And there is a video that uh, that is connected or is linked within the story that will show you that as well. Now, here's what Andrea Widberg noticed. She says, aside from Fauci's repeated creepy little flick of the tongue, starting at 2.48, Fauci limits his denial to having seen the grant request, which is probably true. What he doesn't say is that he never had different communications with EcoHealth or received different information. He also continued in his refusal to produce all the documents in his possession. Quote, It really pains me to have to point out to the American public how absolutely incorrect you are. What came out last night on Project Veritas was a grant that was submitted to DARPA. Then it distorted and said, We funded the grant. We, ne- we have never seen that grant, and we have never funded that grant. So once again, you are completely and unequivocally incorrect when you join. The DARPA proposal was a grant that we never saw and we did not fund. So you are incorrect, sir. Now, there's a snip here and it says, why don't we go and look at the Veritas statement? They were talking about a grant that was submitted to DARPA. Now, here's the key. By focusing entirely on that grant, Fauci manages not to answer whether he received a similar proposal, whether formal or informal, from EcoHealth. And that's true because NIAID would never receive a DARPA grant in the first place. So what Fauci could have said was something along the lines of, well, EcoHealth never came to us with any proposal. But instead, he slithers around, tongue flickering, trying to distance himself from that grant. So maybe Fauci didn't really see anything at all. Maybe he just accidentally gave EcoHealth lots of taxpayer money to go to the CCP military-allied Wuhan Institute of Virology and conduct gain-of-function research on bat viruses. But Andrea Woodberg says, I'd be hard-pressed to believe that story. 
Now, for a guy who considers himself the embodiment of science, he has made it very clear he's not about to accept any responsibility for the carnage that he and other health officials unleashed in their COVID response. Joaquin Book has an excellent article from the, on the Brownstone Institute's page. Is anyone going to accept responsibility for this? And he starts by quoting the Senate hearing where Rand Paul said plainly to Anthony Fauci what everybody knows and is the most easily documented fact in the U.S. experience of the pandemic. You are the one responsible. You are the architect. You are the lead architect for the response from the government. Fauci very quickly protested, Senator, first of all, if you look at everything I've said, you accuse me of, in a monolithic way, telling people what they need to do. Everything that I've said has been in support of the CDC guidelines, end quote. Now, this is the model that will consume all public discussion of the pandemic response in the future, seeking but never finding anyone to bear responsibility. And that's typical for episodes in history that are characterized by mass frenzy and distorted fanaticism. Once the mania is gone, it's hard to find anyone who's willing to accept responsibility for feeding it and acting upon it. So here's some historical perspective and precedent. And there is plenty of it. Stefan Zwig, writing in the 1930s and 40s, described the mood in Vienna at the beginning of Europe's first attempt at collectivist self-destruction, the Great War or World War I. Quote, it soon became impossible to converse reasonably with anyone in the first war weeks of 1914. The most peaceable and the most good-natured were intoxicated with the smell of blood. Friends whom I had looked upon as decided individualists and even as philosophical anarchists changed overnight into fanatic patriots and from patriots into insatiable annexationists. Annexationists. Anyway, <laughs> I'm not even going to try the word anymore. End quote. So, Joaquin Books says we search in the past for some inkling of what, however horrific, may lay in the cards for our future. And Zwig's romantic and well-written story, The World of Yesterday, Memoirs of a European, is one of the most powerful and celebrated accounts of what went wrong with the Golden Age before 1914. In fact, uh, Joaquin Book says, throughout the pandemic, I've returned to his terrifying words again and again, and he does have links within the article to, to show you what he's talking about. He says, many of us today can relate to the quote above. Once more, we try to find our way out of a collectivist self-destruction so how does one engage with those so riled up by bloodlust and outgroup intolerance, those who just a few years before had been both respectful and affectionate? Well, he says, when something big changes in the world, the kind of thing that demands and mainstreams everyone's attention, for Zwig and his friends, a nationalistic war, for us, a pandemic of unstoppable domination, uncrossable divides seem to turn friend into foe. How do we mend these wounds? Wounds, rather. Well, the truth is many of us just give up and check out. Zwig certainly did. Quote, nothing remained but to withdraw into oneself and keep silent while the others ranted and raved. End quote. This too shall pass, or so one hopes. But does it, does it take a few months or years? What if it takes decades? Joaquin Book says, the impossible question from realizing this personal and societal gap won't heal. Is, to, is whom to hold responsible once the mad rush ends. Jeffrey Tucker observes that the buck doesn't seem to stop with anyone, and those who make sense of some of the critical pandemic decisions are quietly and not so quietly exiting the scene. 
Tucker says everyone had an alibi. It became one big mush of bureaucracy with no accountability. The buck is always passed on and up in the chain of command, but no one will accept the blame and bear the consequences. End quote. Now, in an upcoming book, Vaclav Smil, the prolific Czech-Canadian energy theorist, remarks on this unaccountability. The closing chapter of the modestly titled How the World Really Works asks its readers to think back to the Great Recession in 2007-2008 and try to remember to whom we assigned the blame, the, whom we assigned the blame, rather. Quote, despite the promises of new beginnings and bold departures, old patterns and old approaches soon resurface to set the stage for another round of failures. I ask any readers who doubt this to check sentiments during and immediately after the great financial crisis of 2007-2008 and compare them with the post-crisis experience. Who has been found responsible for this systemic near-collapse of the financial order? What fundamental departures, besides enormous injections of new monies, were taken to reform questionable practices or to reduce economic inequality, end quote. So Joaquin Book says, look, all we seem to be able to agree on is that somebody somewhere did something wrong. What exactly that was and who, therefore, was to blame remains unclear. Think tanks of this or that ideological flavor wrote long and exhaustive reports of what had gone wrong, including names of the guilty who either ignored the accusation or disputed them. The government had an inquiry commission, a 600-page report, including dissenting statements by members of the commission who couldn't agree with one another. The word blame is used 22 times, but never levied in an identifiable person. Only institutions, the SEC, mortgage brokers, underwriters, Fannie and Freddie, the complexity of the supervisory system, or the Fed's low interest rates. Political parties pointed fingers at one another and spun reasonable-sounding stories for how they, if only they had been in in power, would have prevented this obvious disaster, or at least dealt better with the aftermath. An easy thing to say, but not so easy to prove. And of course, the banking finance money system was too complex to conclusively decide who did it, even with all the cards on that splendid hindsight table. About 90 years later, still still you'll find scholars arguing over what caused the Great Depression. 200, 300 years later, historians still can't conclusively establish which of the half dozen or so most prominent explanations for the Industrial Revolution best fits the facts. And it's the only minor, it's the only, only the minor question of why we're rich. Now the same thing is going to happen to the origins of SARS-CoV-2 and the pandemic debacles of these past two years. And on this, he says, I fear Smill is right. Nobody will be found responsible for any of the the many strategic lapses that guaranteed the mismanagement of the pandemic before it even began. Yeah, it's crazy stuff. Throwing mud is easy, is something he points out. But building bridges is hard. And how we return to the ladder after years in the mud pits is far from clear. But I think people who share a commitment to truth are going to be the best hope in a time where, you know, you have people looking to lay blame and others just looking to desperately cast that blame onto somebody else. All I know is I don't trust the government experts. And Dr. Fauci sits at the top of that heap of those who I don't trust. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. I don't know if you have uh, been looking around lately. My wife, Becky, went to the grocery store last night, and I just asked her. I I mean, I wasn't trying to make her scared or anything, but I said, would you kind of keep an eye out? Let me know how empty the store shelves seem to be. Because I've been seeing more and more stories popping up about, you know, grocery store shelves across the country, you know, having some very noticeable gaps. Now, we've talked about this off and on, and again, the, the goal here isn't to scare you, but it's it's happening there there's there are some real gaps and i i can't begin to tell you why i mean we we hear the blame of well you know it's the supply chain shutdowns and backlogged uh, ports and so forth it's just very curious how it's all seeming to come together and my point is simply this better to have some stores of your own like a little grocery store within your home to which you can turn in times of need when things aren't readily available at your favorite supermarket. Best way I know to go about that is a good food storage program. And that's where I would like to recommend one of my sponsors, lifesavingfood.com. Go to their website. I've got a link in the show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. They'll offer you a 15% discount on whatever you choose to buy. No sales tax, no charge for delivery. Free delivery, no sales tax, 15% discount. The time to get started is right now. If you've been putting it off, this is the time to do it. Inflation is a real thing. The shortages are becoming a real thing. Get stocked up while stocks are still available. Do it now while your money still buys, has has more purchasing power than it's likely to have in a few weeks or even, even a few months. All right, that said... You know, the folks who are responsible for destroying so many lives through the uh, COVID response claim that they did what they did in order to protect us. I got a great article here from Mike Meharry from the 10th Amendment Center that reminds us the power to protect is also the power to control, which is, I'm sure, not lost on that uh, segment of society. Now, if you want to protect people from opportunists, I guess the key here is you have to limit government's power. Mike Meharry says, most people think the federal government should guarantee their rights. In other words, they think the U.S. government should police state and local governments to ensure that they don't violate their rights. Now, practically speaking, the federal government does this through the incorporation doctrine. That's the Supreme Court created legal principle that applies the Bill of Rights to the states through the 14th Amendment. The incorporation doctrine provides a legal pathway for people to sue over rights violations in federal court. For instance, if somebody thinks a local cop violated the Fourth Amendment warrant requirement, they'll sue that police department in federal court. Or if a state passes a restrictive gun law, they sue the state in federal court, citing a violation of the Second Amendment. Now, it's easy to see the appeal of this strategy. State governments often violate our rights. It's reasonable to conclude that we need a more powerful body to keep them in check. And the federal government fits the bill. After all, we have this thing called a Bill of Rights. But that's not what was intended by the founding generation. The Bill of Rights was never intended to apply to the states. The preamble makes this clear. Quote, The conventions of a number of states having at the time of their adopting the Constitution expressed a desire, in order to prevent misconstruction or abuse of its powers, that further declaratory and restrictive clauses should be added 
and as extending the ground of public confidence in the government will best ensure the beneficent ends of its institution. Now, the words, its power, clearly refer back to the Constitution. And Mike Meharry says the Bill of Rights was intended to prevent misconstruction or abuse of the Constitution's powers as exercised through the government, the federal government. Note the word government is not plural. The Bill of Rights makes no mention of state governments. In fact, the state ratifying conventions had no intention of restricting their state's own powers. They already had state constitutions to do that job. During the Philadelphia Convention, James Madison proposed the federal government should have veto power over state laws. Now, the framers rejected this for good reason, but the incorporation doctrine effectively instituted what the founding generation rejected. During the debate over ratification of the Constitution, one of the greatest fears voiced by opponents was the specter of consolidation. The founding generation used the term consolidation to describe a centralized government with vast power and control, and many founders warned of its danger. For instance, during the Virginia ratifying convention, Patrick Henry issued a stark warning, quote, dangers are to be apprehended in whatever manner we proceed, but those of a consolidation are the most destructive, end quote. Now, he went on to warn that consolidation would end in the destruction of our liberties. Why? Well, as William Davey told the uh, North Carolina ratifying convention, so extensive a country as this can never be managed by one consolidated government. Thomas Jefferson also warned about the problem of, of consolidation as a practical matter in an 1800 letter to Gideon Granger, wisely observing that the United States were too large to be governed by a central authority. Quote, our country is too large to have all its affairs directed by a single government. Public servants at such a distance and from under the eye of their constituents will, from the circumstance of distance, be unable to administer and overlook all the details necessary for the good government of the citizen. And the same circumstance, by rendering detection impossible to their constituents, will invite the public agents to corruption, plunder, and waste. End quote. Gosh, did he nail that or what? Now, a few politicians and bureaucrats simply can't competently deal with local issues thousands of miles away. Try as they might. And yet Americans have rushed headlong into consolidation to their detriment. So Mike Meharry says the incorporation doctrine is nothing but a pathway to consolidation. It centralizes power at the federal level. It leaves the states at the mercy of federal courts. Sometimes the courts issue an opinion favorable to liberty, but more often than not, they expand government power, particularly federal government power. In other words, consolidation. During the Delaware Ratifying Convention, some delegates argued the proposed Constitution needed an amendment to empower the federal government to guarantee religious freedom in the states. Henry Marchant responded with a poignant warning. Quote, it will be dangerous to call upon the new general government for a guarantee of religious freedoms in the states. For the power to guarantee turns quickly into a power to control. End quote. Now, Marchant digs down to the root problem of depending on federal power to protect your rights. It gives the federal government more control over your life, and most of the time it doesn't even protect your rights. Look at how the Supreme Court's power to protect religious liberty turned out. We have federal courts dictating Christmas displays in local parts. Why would anyone want federal officials involved in such local concerns? 
He says the key to protecting people from government power is limiting government power, not handing the government even more power. And he says, never forget, power always comes down to control. Again, this is Mike Meharry from the um, Tenth Amendment Center. Fabulous stuff. If you haven't uh, read their works regularly, I think you'll find there's a lot of great food for thought there. We'd all be uh, we'd all be in a much better position if, uh, for instance, more members of Congress would uh, would regularly consult the Tenth Amendment Center instead of just playing along with the uh, well. This is the way things are done in Washington D.C., and therefore it must be right. What an interesting time. You know, I, I think about uh, the the moves that are taking place right now at the federal level. We're, we're seeing a very noticeable push to federalize all of our elections. Gee, I wonder why. Why would the political class in Washington, D.C. want to make sure that uh, they are, in their words, protecting voting rights by assuming control of elections right down to the state level, and I assume it would include the lo- the local level as well. I mean, call me paranoid if you will, but that sure sounds a lot like consolidation to me. And if you want to really get down to well, what was the, what was the the battle you know between the Federalists and the Anti Federalists, and it really came down to to the Consolidationists versus those who believed in the original intent of the founding generation. And even among the founding generation, there were consolidationists. Sorry, Alexander Hamilton? Yep, he was a big one. George Washington leaned more consolidationist than uh, than I wish he had, but um, you didn't really see the, the fruits of that kind of consolidationist thinking until Abraham Lincoln, who preserved the Union against, you know, the the voluntary wishes of uh, those in the South. Now, in yesterday's show notes, I actually included uh, an article about some of the root causes for the Civil War that go beyond just what we're told in the history books. It was about stopping slavery. Now, it was about uh, forced consolidation versus, you know, the ability to be self-determining. Don't ever lose sight of that. This is The Brian Hyde Show. A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome to the show. This program is predicated on the idea that you are absolutely capable of being your own fact checker. So I'm not here to tell you this is the way it is and you have to believe every word that I say. But I'm going to encourage you to examine some of the commentaries and some of the guests that I share with you. And consider if there is truth to what they have to say. I I really trust you to make your own decision. And if you say, well, Brian, this just doesn't add up, that's fine. That doesn't mean that you and I can no longer be friends. It just means that we won't uh, see this from the same vantage point. Sometimes that's actually a good thing. I don't know if you've ever practiced this, but, you know, if hearing somebody out without trying to change their mind 
is uh, is actually a very helpful exercise. If for no other reason, it gives you a broader perspective of how to view things that are going on around shaping your world without becoming, you know, very narrow in your vision and dogmatic and, and, and worse, defensive to where you feel like I got to fight everybody until they agree with me. Not a good way to approach things. By the way, I have some great sponsors who make our show possible. They include lifesavingfood.com, monticellocollege.org, hslammo.com, sewingandquiltingcenter.com, governyourincome.com, and the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah. All right, we've got a lot of fun stuff to cover in this hour. Have you noticed how little the media is saying about the alleged plot to kidnap Michigan Governor Whitmer? Julie Kelly, who writes for amgreatness.com, that's American Greatness, says that uh, there's a reason for this blackout, and it has a lot to do with the imploding Whitmer kidnapping plot. She says it's impossible to report on the Whitmer case without connecting it to January 6th, so rather than do its job, the national news media is completely ignoring this sensational story. Julie Kelly says, Once upon a time in America, a high-profile federal prosecution imploding amid credible accusations of FBI entrapment would earn wall-to-wall headlines in the national news media. A wife-beating FBI agent who used at least one criminal informant and a dozen more government assets to concoct a plot to abduct a sitting governor intended to create damaging headlines for an incumbent president right before Election Day would receive nonstop coverage on cable and broadcast news outlets. Such media would be flooded with all the juicy details. Names like Richard Trask and Stephen Robison would be household names. But none of that's happening with the Justice Department's rapidly crumbling case against several men arrested for allegedly conspiring to kidnap Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer from her vacation cottage in the fall of 2020. Now, defense attorneys have made a strong case that without the FBI's guiding hand and deep pockets courtesy of American taxpayers, the scheme would never have materialized past random social media chatter. Five defense attorneys wrote in a December 25th motion, the undisputed evidence establishes that government agents and informants concocted, hatched, and pushed this kidnapping plan from the beginning doing so against defendants who explicitly repudiated the plan. Now, this is one of several defense filings that details proof of an elaborate FBI operation to lure their clients into the abduction caper. Julie Kelly says the bad actors in the government script keep finding themselves in more trouble. Richard Trask, the lead agent uh, from the FBI on this case, was fired for physically assaulting his wife in a drunken rage following a swinger party last summer. Body camera footage made public last month shows a shirtless and clearly inebriated Trask being arrested by local police. He was not charged with driving under the influence. A Michigan news station recently unearthed Trask's Trump-hating rants and posted on social media in 2020. If you still support our piece of S president, you can F off, Trask wrote on Facebook at the same time he was investigating threats against Whitmer. Trask said he hoped people who support Trump burn in hell. Now, two other FBI agents working with Trask at the Detroit FBI field office who handled multiple informants also have been dismissed from the case. FBI agent Jason Chambers is accused of running a security business on the side. And FBI agent Henrik Impola is accused of committing perjury in another case. 
The Justice Department just notified the court that Trask, Chambers, and Impola are no longer on the government's witness list. And just when it looked like things couldn't get worse for prosecutors, Stephen Robeson, a main informant and convicted felon, has been charged with committing two other crimes while directing the Whitmer kidnapping ruse. Prosecutors last week accused Robeson of acting as a double agent. Prosecutors said Robeson broke an agreement with the FBI by offering charity money to buy weapons to be used in attacks, illegally obtained weapons and offered personal equipment, including a drone, to aid in committing domestic terrorism. So not only is Robeson off the government's witness list, but the Justice Department is fighting to stop defense attorneys from presenting damning evidence of Robeson's involvement during the trial scheduled to begin in March. Now, all of this salacious drama should be front-page news. After all, when the Justice Department announced the kidnapping charges in a press release on October 8, 2020, it was a bonanza for the corporate media right before Election Day. The shocking news resulted in widespread condemnation of Donald Trump, blamed once again for promoting violence against his political opponents and emboldening so-called militia groups loyal to him. Whitmer made an emotional statement the day the charges were announced, accusing Trump of encouraging domestic terrorists who tried to kill her. Joe Biden, quickly seizing on the politically advantageous moment, blasted Trump's dog whistles to extremist vi- to, to ex- violent extremists. Rather. Dozens of articles and columns were posted at the New York Times, the Washington Post, Politico, and other influential publications within a matter of hours. A thwarted plot could thwart Trump, two political reporters predicted. Mary McCord, a former Obama Justice Department official and perpetual Trump antagonist, had a New York Times column ready to go on the very same day her former employer publicly revealed the plot. McCord is now advising the January 6th Select Committee. The Washington Post published a guest column by Whitmer herself on October 9th, repeating her allegations that Trump was responsible in fact, Whitmer made the media rounds for days, conveniently playing the victim to Trump's villain as early voting was underway in her swing state. Whitmer complained on NBC's Meet the Press, it's incredibly disturbing that the President of the United States, 10 days after a plot to kidnap me, put me on trial and execute me, 10 days after that was uncovered, the President is at it again and inspiring and incentivizing and inciting this kind of domestic terrorism. Oh, boo-hoo, Gretchen. Now, CNN read numerous articles about the thwarted plot. Jake Tapper confronted both Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson, a Republican, and Laura Trump with accusations the president was responsible for the alleged attack. Why does he continue to use such heightened rhetoric at a time when her life was literally in danger, according to the FBI? Tapper asked Trump, uh, Laura Trump, rather, on October 18th. Well, considering all the histrionics and allegations that Trump incited a potential domestic terror attack, attempted murder even, it seems that these same journalists would eagerly cover all the evidence emerging in the case ahead of the March 8th trial. But the Whitmer kidnapping plot hasn't just been memory-holed by the national media. It faces what one can only assume is a coordinated, intentional news blackout. Tapper, a copious tweeter, has not tweeted anything about the Whitmer kidnapping ruse since October of 2020. CNN, The Washington Post, The New York Times, and Politico haven't published any news about the Whitmer case in months. 
Now, MSNBC aired one interview last month on recent defense motions to dismiss the case on grounds of entrapment. Former prosecutor Joyce Vance opined there's a zero chance that a Michigan judge will drop the federal charges. The last time the New York Times printed Richard Trask's name was in October 2020 after he testified that rogue militia groups were involved in the kidnapping plot. Ditto for October 2020 mentions in Politico and CNN. Trask's name is dying in darkness over at the Washington Post, which has never published his name in any Whitmer-related article. Apparently a federal cop who nearly strangled his wife to death after a swinger party and then received a slap-on-the-wrist sentence for assault is of no interest to the otherwise man-and-cop-loathing reporters and columnists at the nation's most influential news organizations. Now, to its credit, BuzzFeed is the only outlet on the left that has relentlessly covered the government's imploding prosecution. BuzzFeed reporters Ken Bessinger and Jessica Garrison have produced a string of detailed investigative reports worthy of awards despite an obvious political slant. So why the media blackout? Well, we're going to come back to that just the other side of our break. But keep in mind that uh, there's there's likewise some very serious damage control going on to prevent people from, from looking a little too closely at a fellow by the name of Ray Epps, who is accused of being an integral part of what happened on January 6th at the U.S. Capitol. Methinks they doth protest too much. We'll come back to that right after these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just want to give a quick shout out to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah. You are looking for a mortgage? These are the folks you want to talk to, not just in St. George, but anywhere in the state of Utah. I would encourage you, get in touch with the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage by calling 435-703-4522. Their office is at 619 South Bluff Street in St. George. Heather's NMLS ID is 715386. Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. So I'm sharing this article from Julie Kelly about the media blackout on the imploding Gretchen Whitmer kidnapping plot. And and she asks the question, why the media blackout? And she says that because the news media know that any coverage of the FBI-concocted plot to, quote, kidnap Gretchen Whitmer is going to bolster suspicions that the FBI played a key, if not primary, role in the events leading up to and including January 6th. After all, the Justice Department continually ties the two events together, describing both as acts of domestic terror and blaming President Trump for both. Now, the head of the Detroit FBI field office was promoted to the D.C. FBI field office one week after the Whitmer kidnapping arrests were announced in October 2020. Stephen D'Antuano is now in charge of the same office that deployed agents to the Capitol grounds on January 6th and is aiding the prosecution of more than 700 Americans arrested for participating in the protest. It's impossible to report on the Whitmer case without connecting it to January 6th. So rather than do its job, the national news media is completely ignoring the sensational story. Too many insurrectionists to smear and destroy, apparently. 
I really like uh, Julie Kelly's take on this, and I, I don't think she's wrong. And it's so funny, the AP did some fact-checking and says, well, you know, this Ray Epps, the guy who the day be- or the night before, January 6th, was out there telling people, here's what we got to do. I'm going to get arrested if I say this, but I'm going to say it anyways. We need to go to the Capitol. That's the source of our problems. We need to get inside the Capitol. And people started calling him out, Fed, 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 you know, telling him, no. He was, at one point, on the FBI's most wanted list, in connection with January 6th, and then quietly removed. And yet we're told, well, you know, the fact-checkers have assured us that, uh, you know, it's just a conspiracy theory, some fringe idea that Ray Epps may be some government asset. Hey, I don't think he's the be-all, end-all. But the fact that you've had several administration officials who cannot answer, you know, Attorney General, Attorney General Garrick, uh, Merrick Garland, rather, I cannot comment on an ongoing investigation. When he's asked point blank, were there federal assets at work or or undercover on January 6th? And I forget the, the woman's name. She was with the FBI. I'm sorry it escapes me at the moment. She was asked point blank about uh, about Ray Epps. And again, I can't answer that question. Look, if truth was on the side of the government, don't you think that they would just be able to say, that's not the case, or no? See, the assumption of innocence applies to you and me. We're citizens. And due process dictates that we are to be considered innocent until proven guilty. It's not that way with government. So I don't, <clears throat> I don't have any qualms about presuming that uh, there's some guilt on the part of government when those officials refuse to answer any kind of question. I think there's a good reason they want to be quiet, because they understand. This is bad news, and it's going to reflect very badly on them, and it destroys their narrative. But in the meantime, I mean, I don't, I don't mean to sound paranoid, but... Have you heard the rhetoric that Joe Biden is using here lately about how we're going to protect our democracy from enemies, foreign and domestic? His administration is gearing up and weaponizing as much of the federal government as possible against anyone who isn't going along with what they're telling us to do. Now, I know this is unpleasant, but that's that puts a target on you and me. Not because we're violent revolutionaries, but just because we are people who understand our rights and uh, be damned if we're going to go along with, you know, this this idea to strip us of our liberties and turn us into serfs. We live in very interesting times. Speaking of interesting times, it should be very clear by now that the political class is terrified at the prospect of an armed citizenry being able to tell them no and to resist by force if necessary. Well, Cody Wilson of Defense Distributed has just thwarted another attempt to to stop ghost guns. This is an interesting article from Reason.com. The ATF apparently is expected to adopt a new rule saying that the metal parts that uh, hobbyists use to manufacture their do-it-yourself weapons need to be registered as legal firearms. And having built a few uh, AR-15s in my time, it's a wonderful thing. I love that, you know, you can get an 80% lower. You can, uh, on a home CNC kit, you can finish milling it out. 
You can assemble it. You can buy all the parts to build your own rifle. And no, there's nothing evil about it. There's nothing inherently shady about it. This is what uh, this is what a hobbyist would do. Well, you know, Brian, criminals could do it too. Yeah, they could. And yet uh, criminals also could just uh, let the uh, U.S. government through the ATF walk guns to them like they did, you know, under the Obama administration. There's a, there's a coming crackdown trying to disarm the American public. And the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms is expected to adopt a new rule, which will be enforced with the force of law, even though this is just some made-up regulatory agency. And this, all this talk about ghost guns, oh, that must be for crime. They want those things registered so the government knows who has them. Well, Cody Wilson, the founder of Austin-based Defense Distributed and a prominent figure in the do-it-yourself gun movement, has been planning a counter-move that he says will allow his customers to circumvent the new rule. The company has modified its $500 home milling machine so that users no longer need to load it with partially fabricated metal parts subject to the new rule. Instead, you'll be able to start from scratch with a solid block of aluminum. The newest version of the Ghost Gunner, a milling machine that's about the size of a home printer, will now be able to take raw materials in their primordial state and turn them into guns. Blocks of aluminum will not be subject to the new regulation. So, squeeze us a little harder there, ATF, and we will just find another way. This is not the first time, by the way, the federal government's tried to undermine Wilson's business. In 2013, the State Department ordered him to take down plans posted to his website for his first 3D-printed gun, the Liberator. He sued on First Amendment grounds, which led to a 2018 settlement with the federal government, a media firestorm, and a Ninth Circuit Court injunction against states trying to ban sharing of the files in 2021. Look, the information's out there. It's not going to be stopped 3D printing is is a thing, and this do-it-yourself-at-home milling is a thing. And try as they might, the ATF may say, well, we just want to label the components so we know who has what. Look, unless this person that you're looking at is suspected of a crime, forgive my French, it's none of your damn business. It is none of your business what that person has. Unless, of course, you're just looking to make up crimes, you know, paperwork errors and whatnot. You're trying to invent criminals out of nothing. This is a very bitter pill for people in government to swallow. And I can understand because they realize the citizenry is going to retain the power of the sword, whether some bureaucrat in Washington wants them to or not. The problem is those bureaucrats in Washington are getting really antsy. And I, I think they're probably getting fearful that their grasp of power over the people is slipping. So note, I'm not calling for people, rise up in armed rebellion. But I'm also saying you need to maintain your ability to protect yourself and to resist, if necessary, those who would otherwise try to take by force your freedoms, your self-determination, your ability to act for yourself. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. 
Hey, welcome back to the show. Want to give a shout out here to Sewing and Quilting Center in St. George, Utah. I know that, uh, you know, look, I, being the manly man that I am, I don't do a whole lot of sewing and quilting, but I've got a wife who's very skilled in this, uh, in this area, and actually my mom has been a diehard quilter for many, many years. So my, my point here is simply, whether you think this is a uh, legit hobby or not, it is a legit hobby. And if you would like to learn more about it, first of all, Sewing and Quilting Center is having a big handy quilter event this month. They have the best prices of the year during this month. And something you may not have known about them, all of their machines come with free classes on how to use their machines. Now, this can include sewing machines. It can include long-arm quilting machines, sergers, etc. When you buy a machine from Sewing and Quilting Center, it comes with free classes. And you can use these classes. You can take them again if you forget or if you just want to refresh your course. They have wonderful teachers. Wouldn't you like to learn a little bit more for yourself? Click on the link I provide in my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com and send some love in the direction of sewingandquiltingcenter.com, located in St. George, Utah. You know, I've seen some pretty positive things in the last, uh, well, in the last few weeks, actually. Watching the COVID narrative start to collapse, and I, I may be getting ahead of myself here. You know, it's, it's, maybe it's too soon to pronounce it. Well, it's coming apart on him. But there are definitely some huge cracks showing through. That's a very hopeful development, at least in my eyes. And it's also pretty satisfying when officials get called out on their abuse of power. Tom Woods sent an email out, and, and this, is, uh, this is actually some of the best news you're going to hear. It's titled, As the Narrative Collapses, Top Scientist Unloads on the Authorities. Tom Wood says, I was in the middle of writing to you today when someone I got to know during this fiasco sent me something I thought you would want to see. So I'll save what I was writing for another day and share this with you instead. It's this. Udi Kimron, head of the Department of Microbiology and Immunology at Tel Aviv University and a leading Israeli immunologist, has taken the opportunity posed by the collapsing narrative to release this open letter to the authorities. Now, Tom notes this is a mechanical translation from the original Hebrew. The letter says, Ministry of Health, it's time to admit failure. In the end, the truth will always be revealed, and the truth about the coronavirus policy is beginning to be revealed. When the destructive concepts collapse one by one, there's nothing left but to tell the experts who led the management of the pandemic, we told you so. Two years late, you finally realize that a respiratory virus cannot be defeated and that any such attempt is doomed to fail. You do not admit it because you have admitted almost no mistake in the last two years. But in retrospect, it is clear that you have failed miserably in almost all of your actions. And even the media is having a hard time covering your shame. You refused to admit that the infection comes in waves that fade by themselves despite years of observations and scientific knowledge. You insisted on attributing every decline of a wave solely to your actions, and so, through false propaganda, you overcame the plague, and again you defeated it, and again, and again, and again. You refuse to admit that mass testing is ineffective, despite your own contingency plans explicitly stating so. You refuse to admit that recovery is more protective than a vaccine, despite previous knowledge and observations showing that non-recovered vaccinated people are more likely to be infected than recovered people. 
you refuse to admit that the vaccinated are contagious despite the observations. Based on this, you hoped to achieve herd immunity by vaccination, and you failed in that as well. You insisted on ignoring the fact that the disease is dozens of times more dangerous for risk groups and older adults than for young people who are not in risk groups, despite the knowledge that that came from China as early as 2020. You refused to adopt the Great Barrington Declaration, signed by more than 60,000 scientists and medical professionals or other common-sense programs. You chose to ridicule, slander, distort, and discredit them. Instead of the right programs and people, you have chosen professionals who lack relevant training for pandemic management. Physicists as chief, as a chief government advisors, veterinarians, security officers, media personnel, and so on. You have not set up an effective system for reporting side effects from the vaccines, and reports on side effects have even been deleted from your Facebook page. Doctors avoid linking side effects to the vaccine, lest you persecute them as you did to some of their colleagues. You've ignored many reports of changes in menstrual intensity and menstrual cycle times. You hid data that allows for objective and proper research. For example, you've removed the data on passengers at Ben Gurion Airport. Instead, you chose to publish non-objective articles together with senior Pfizer executives on the effectiveness and safety of the vaccines. However, from the heights of your hubris, you have also ignored the fact that in the end, the truth will be revealed. And it begins to be revealed. He says, the truth is that you have brought the public's trust in you to an unprecedented low. And you have eroded your status as a source of authority. The truth is that you've burned hundreds of billions of shekels to no avail for publishing intimidation, for ineffective tests, for destructive lockdowns, and for disrupting the routine of life in the past two years. You've destroyed the education of our children and their future. You made children feel guilty, scared, smoke, drink, get addicted, drop out, and quarrel as school principals across the country attest. You've harmed livelihoods, the economy, human rights, mental health, and physical health. You slandered colleagues who did not surrender to you. You turned the people against each other, divided society, and polarized the discourse. You branded without any scientific basis people who chose not to get vaccinated as enemies of the public and as spreaders of disease. You promote in an unprecedented way a draconian policy of discrimination, a denial of rights and selection of people, including children, for their medical choice, a selection that lacks any epidemiological justification. Now, when you compare the destructive policies you are pursuing with the same policies of some other countries, you can clearly see that the destruction you have caused has only added victims beyond the vulnerable to the virus. The economy you ruined, the unemployment you caused, the uh, children whose education you destroyed are the surplus victims as a result of your actions only. Now, he says there is currently no medical emergency, but you have been cultivating such a condition for two years now because of lust of power, lust for power, rather, budgets and control. The only emergency now is that you still set policies and hold huge budgets for propaganda and consciousness engineering instead of directing them to strengthen the healthcare system. 
This emergency must stop. Now, Tom Wood says, that's a beautiful letter. (laughs) And he says, you know, virtually everything in that letter was known to people within his elite group a long time ago. I don't disagree with a single thing that these authorities are being called out on. But here's the question that I have for you. Do you still give those people in authority the same kind of deference? And and do you give them the obedience that they insist that you give them? I realize it it may not be a one-size-fits-all approach. Not everybody's comfortable in, you know, making that stand. For some people, it has literally become a matter of, well, I can't keep my job unless I do what these officials are telling me to do. But I think this is this is where we are finding out who is serious and who isn't serious about understanding and standing up for their freedoms, standing up for their rights. And as much as it might seem satisfying to some people, well, we ought to have tar and feathers and horse whipping ought to come back and putting people in the stocks and throwing rotten vegetables at them. Yeah, there's, you know, there is a certain sense of justice that I feel like needs to be satisfied. I'm not convinced that any of those are the way to do it. What I do think is we need to decide for ourselves, will I give my allegiance to this person or that person or this agency or this bureaucrat based on their past performance? Now, I realize not everybody's going to see it this way. I have family members who, who don't see it this way. I look at things and I think, how could people look at this two years later and not see that the emergency is being prolonged, it is being drawn out, it is being exaggerated in every way possible to keep it going? And the closest thing I feel to contempt is likely for those legacy media organizations that feel like, you know, they they have a duty to keep people in a state of fear and uncertainty. We call them the fear pornographers. And there's no denying they're very good at what they do, but I'm really sick of them. (laughs) If I could just be honest about it, they really make me sick. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Thank you for being part of our super spreader event. Yes, it's true. This program is a super spreader of useful information encouragement, and hopefully a little bit of truth and light mixed in. So do you think we're ever going to see normality return? I mean, it's, it's pretty clear that the folks who think they have to tell the rest of us what to do, it's very clear they have no intention of relinquishing the control that they've assumed via the pandemic. Brendan O'Neill, writing for, I believe it's spikedonline.com, says we aren't going to get back to normality by waiting them for them to give us permission to be free. That's a choice that we're going to have to make for ourselves. Now keep in mind, he's writing from the UK, but this still translates so well. He says, suddenly everyone's talking about getting back to normal. 
after 22 months of restrictions, of going in and out of lockdown, of a suspension of civil liberties that was unprecedented in modern peacetime Britain. All the talk is of moving on. Let's learn to live with COVID, politicians say. The UK could become one of the first major economies to move from pandemic to endemic and then deal with this, says Education Secretary Nadim Sawahi. Now, even the Observer, which wasn't shy in its lockdown drum beating over the past couple of years, is now doing splashes on experts who think it's time we put the COVID obsession behind us. And mass jabs and treat COVID like we do the flu, said its front page on Sunday. What a turnaround. Not long ago, the Observer was in the front line of branding those who spoke of COVID in the same breath of, as flu as dangerous loons. Now, the Observer's startling front page is about Dr. Clive Dix, the former chairman of the UK's vaccine task force. He now thinks that mass population-based vaccination should end. We should tailor vaccines to the vulnerable rather than jabbing everyone, he says. Moving forward, we need to manage disease, not virus spread, says Dr. Dix. There's also chat about cutting the isolation time for COVID, again, this time from seven days to five. Well, should we have to isolate it all? Given the mildness of Omicron, maybe not. Some experts are saying out loud, ultimately, we're going to have to let people who are positive with COVID go about their normal lives as they would do with any other cold, says one professor of medicine. Meanwhile, Sir John Bell, Regis Professor, professor of Medicine at Oxford University, says COVID is no longer the same disease we were seeing a year ago. High death rates are now history. Now, Brendan O'Neill says reasoned voices seem to be to the fore now, while the Schiller fearmongers of the cursed COVID era are on the back foot. That might be one reason why their commentary is becoming ever more frenzied. They sense that the clout and celebrity they enjoyed during the COVID terror is slowly slipping away. Leading alarmist Deep T. Gurdasani is now even accusing The Guardian and the BBC, possibly the least lockdown skeptical institutions in the land, of being sources of misinformation. All because they're saying that maybe, just maybe, the worst is behind us. Brendan O'Neill says this is typical of COVID authoritarians. They don't merely criticize those they disagree with. They accuse them of deliberately intending to deceive the populace, which, according to the dictionary, is one of the meanings of the word misinformation. Calmer, more respecting, of, more self-respecting alarmists seem to recognize that the jig is up. The spectacular collapse of the deranged Omicron projections drawn up by the people around Sage has added to the feeling that we are at a turning point in this crisis. Deaths could hit 6,000 a day, screamed a Guardian article on December 18th, summarizing Sage's worst-case thinking. Well, courtesy of Sage's mad modeling, such doom-ridden predictions were everywhere three weeks ago. The reality, to engage in some rather dramatic understatement, is a little different. There has been a small spike in deaths, but nothing remotely like the calamities we saw in earlier waves. Cases in parts of England now seem to be falling and hospitalizations are plateauing. It seems those South African experts we were told to ignore may have been right all along. Gloomster scientists admit they were wrong about 75,000 Omicron deaths, said a headline in the, mail, in the Daily Mail as UK experts accepted they may have jumped the gun. Now, Brendan O'Neill says, look, of course we must still be vigilant. 
COVID is a sneaky bastard. It can still morph, it can still cause harm. And most people, not being the selfish, uncaring idiots that stalk the nightmares of the COVID fearmongers, are still taking precautions. So, if you got a sore throat these days, you don't visit your ailing grandmother. You might even dodge the pub. We don't need liberty-trashing laws to make us behave responsibly. We have our own, brace yourself, moral consciences. And yet we are well within our rights to start talking about the good news. Namely, that the inspiring mass rollout of vaccination is successfully protecting us from the serious ill health and high death rates that were the dire wages of earlier COVID waves. Now, he says that's worth raising a glass to. Resisting the dying cries of the COVID fear lobby and instead cheering mankind's brave and fruitful war against this blasted virus is the most important act of intellectual resistance any one of us can engage in right now. Normality, he says, here we come. And yet, without wanting to make any further contribution to the gloom that continues to grip too many in the political and media sets, Brendan O'Neill says we need to get real about how difficult that journey back to normality is likely to be. He says it will be a rocky ride. Liberty, public trust, social solidarity, and freedom of thought have been ravaged to such an extraordinary degree over the past two years that their restoration is not going to be a simple or easy task. The technical accomplishment of weakening COVID-19 and holding at bay its most pernicious impacts on human health is one thing, and is a great thing, But repairing the political freedoms and social bonds that were so violently undercut by lockdown, that's another thing entirely. And he says it's naive to think that normality will magically reemerge intact in rude health simply because we've scored a scientific victory over COVID's fatality rate. No, he says if you want to live normally, you're going to have to fight for it. So just as we assess the damage or we must assess the damage that COVID-19 did to human health, so we must examine the impact restrictions had on society and freedom. One of the worst decisions made by governments across Europe was to deploy the politics of fear to try to dragoon their citizens into abiding by COVID rules and regulations. As sociologist and sage advisor Dr. Robert Robert Dingwall said back in May of 2020, Officialdom effectively terrorized the public into believing COVID would kill them if they broke the rules. We created a climate of fear, he said. The consequence of terrorizing the public rather than galvanizing us to pull together to combat the spread of COVID and assist the vulnerable became clear very early on. Snitching abounded, neighbors told on neighbors, venturing outside came to be viewed as dangerous antisocial behavior. Police forces went wild, clearing people out of parks for no good reason, even sending drones to spy on dog walkers in scenic country spots. The culture of atomization that predated COVID was intensified by the terror officialdom deployed in response to COVID. And repairing solidarity will be a tough task. Then there's the freedom of thought, the right to think and speak differently to mainstream opinion. He says, to my mind, one of the most noxious elements of the COVID hysteria was the ruthless demonization of anyone who questioned the policy of lockdown. The impact of this incurious, censorious culture should not be underestimated. 
Consider the attempted unpersoning of Sunetra Gupta, J. Bhattacharya, and Martin Koldorf, the originators of the Great Barrington Declaration, which argued for focused protection of vulnerable people rather than a generalized lockdown. For proposing in utterly good faith that there might be a better way of dealing with COVID, these people were treated as thought criminals. Commentators hollered for their no platforming. They received hate, threats. They were depicted as a danger to public health, the new enemy within. It all spoke to the unforgiving intolerance of the COVID era. Now, what about the culture of freedom? He says, forget for a moment the way our legally guaranteed liberties were put on ice during this crisis. That was bad, no question. But more injurious, if sometimes intangible process was taking place right alongside this temporary unwinding of our rights, the culture of freedom was undermined. You hear a lot about this COVID denialism, those who would deny the scientific reality of COVID-19's impact on human health. Now, there are people who are worth challenging, but there's a worse problem, and that is cultural denialism. The blinkered relief that lockdown was a simple, straightforward measure to deal with the health crisis rather than something that was also highly influenced by cultures of fear, distrust, and censorship that sadly define this young century. I'd say the guy's right on target. Again, this is Brendan O'Neill writing in Spiked Online. You can check out this article for yourself. Just click on the link provided in today's show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. This is The Brian Hyde Show.